Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. And let's uh, bow our heads just once more in prayer. Uh, Lord Jesus, we uh, echo everything that's gone on so far in our service today. Um, that we are a needy people, and you are a gracious God. Lord, one of the primary gifts you have given us in this world is your word, um, which is not dead, which is not static, which is alive, um, which nourishes us, which uh, pierces us, which divides us, which convicts us. And Lord, at the end of Moses' message today in Deuteronomy's uh, 9 and 10, there's a sincere desire for his people to worship God. So we pray that you do that. And might we stand in awe that any human heart would worship God as each and every worshiping heart is a miracle of the gospel for the world to see. We pray this in your name. Amen. And so we have been uh, working our way through the book of Deuteronomy, which as we've gone through it, we've learned that it's a sermon uh, given by Moses to God's people, Israel, is about to go into the promised land. And on a broad level, what we're going to see throughout the book of Deuteronomy are really three points that Moses is going to keep coming back to over and over again. He's reminding Israel of who they are, what God has done, and how that should change everything. In other words, the whole scope of Deuteronomy is a reminder of God's unearned and unmerited love to his people and his people's response to it. Same is true for us. We're seeing God's unmerited love, and it's gauging our response to it. And at its core, this book is really a book about change, how it happens, why we need it, and what threats there are to it. I'm sure each and every one of you has wrestled with change at some point in your life, either the desire to have it or the ability to actually achieve it, which is why this book, written over 4,000 years ago, is still so valuable to us today. It's incredibly relevant, not simply because it meets a need, but because it meets the universal human condition that only God and his word can actually meet. And so God has been reminding his people of all the faithful and wonderful things that God will do if only God's people will keep their covenant to God. A covenant we saw in Deuteronomy 6, which was summarized with the command to love God the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That's the enduring change that the people of Israel need to have. Their change that Moses wants to see in them, the change that will save them, is a change of heart. And the same thing is true for you today. Regardless of what you think your biggest need is in the world, you need your heart to be changed for God. And last week and this week, Moses is talking about the threats that have to that affection, threats to our godly affection that changes our heart. And last week, he talked about the threat of forgetfulness, of forgetting that God has made you his people for his possession. God has made you for holiness. And this week, he's addressing a new threat, and that is the threat of a stubborn heart. Moses, in this story, wants God's people to see the stubbornness of their heart and God's response to it how he's going to deal with it. And what we're going to see this morning as it relates to our own hearts in the story of Israel are three things. We're going to see this. We're going to see the stubbornness of sin, the stubbornness of grace, and the liberty of love. So we're going to look at Israel's stubbornness. We're going to look at God's good stubbornness, and we're going to see the result of it being liberty and love. Last week, 
We saw Moses talking to the people of Israel, and he was kind of giving grounds for confidence and for concern, right? Confidence. God is going to do these wonderful things in your midst. He has promised it. He is faithful to do it. But concern, you're really going to wrestle to do what God has called you to do. And to not obey God, to reject God, is to be in danger of missing out on God, missing out on uh, God's promise and being under God's judgment. And that theme of confidence and concern is going to continue today, and actually next week we're going to see this um, kind of elevated even more as Moses brings in this motif of blessing and of curse. But with that in mind, let's read the first eight verses from Deuteronomy chapter 9 today. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations. And so crossing the Jordan is crossing into the promised land. They're on the opposite side of the Jordan River. To go in and dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of Anakim, whom you know, and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore that he who goes before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Do not say in your hearts, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. So in these first eight verses, we see Moses encountering the universal human problem of overconfidence. People feeling a little swaggerful about what has happened in their life. And you'll notice the language that Moses is using here. Very distinct language, right? He says, you are going to go fight great and mighty nations. Greater and mightier than you. You're going to defeat cities, great and fortified, up to heaven. You will conquer people, great and tall, the people of legend. Who can stand against the sons of Anak? And then he goes on to say, but it's the one who goes over before you who is a consuming fire. Your God, Yahweh, he is the one who will conquer. He is the one who will subdue. You will come in like those fourth quarter scrubs and you will just stand there as God gives you the victory. But he knows that us fourth quarter scrubs, we sometimes get a little cocky. We sometimes feel a little confident and it's easy for us to lose perspective. In times of conquest, in times of comfort, we mistake our own roles so quickly. We begin to see ourselves as we are the great, powerful, consuming fire. If I've beat all these great, mightier nations, then that certainly means that I am greater, stronger, faster, taller, prettier, wealthier, smarter, brighter, handsomer, if that's even a word. And in these moments, Moses says, you are going to be tempted 
to boast in your righteousness. Meaning you're, you're going to be tempted to think it's your own right performance, it's your own perfect ability which has gotten you into this land. In other words, you might think the reason God is giving you this good land and these good promises is because God was surveying all of the earth and he saw you, this bright shining star, perfect in all of your ways, and he said you must be rewarded for your perfection. For your righteousness, you must have this land. You see, we're naturally prone to be overconfident. We're naturally prone as humans to be arrogant, even if it manifests itself in some sort of meek humility. Uh, last year, the Chicago Bears lost out of the NFL playoffs off the double doink, which was a missed field goal of 43 yards. And if you know anything about Chicago, they're really reasonable people. And so they rioted. Everyone was all freaked out about this, and uh, the, the cry was, anyone could have made this field goal. They missed, you know, we can argue back and forth all day. But what happened was the next week, a uh, Chicago brewing company uh, set up a 43-yard field goal attempt. And they offered anyone who could come and make the field goal a year's supply of beer. So hundreds of people lined up, all of these overly confident couch kickers, and no one made it. Instead, what happened is you could go on Twitter and you just see 10-second clips of men making complete and utter fools of themselves, pulling their hamstrings, slipping on the snow, falling on their back, all to say, you can't do it. And it's that sort of humiliation that Moses is intentionally bringing to the people of Israel today. He wants them to know the only reason you're here is because your faithful covenant-keeping God has possessed you and brought you here. Have you ever thought in your life, whether you're a Christian, whether you're non-Christian, whether you're a Christian and you think about why it is that you believe the gospel, whether you're non-Christian, you think about any of the good things that have happened in your life. Why is it that you of all people have this experience? We begin to find justification in ourselves. I worked harder. I was smarter. I was more pious. I was born into a better family. But Moses here gives three reasons. You felt the weight as we read it. Why it's not because of your righteousness. It's not because of your righteousness, Israel, because I'm also judging the seven nations in the promised land. They are sinful, and I will punish their sin. It's not because of your righteousness, Israel. It's because I'm keeping a covenant to your fathers before you were even a glimmer in your parents' eye. I promise to do this. And it's not because of your righteousness, Israel, because your heart is stubborn. Moses wants them to know that they are far from righteous. In fact, he's going to go on to show that they take every opportunity to stubbornly resist God's righteous rules whenever they get the chance. Moses presumes Israel's arrogance and perhaps maybe our own arrogance today as he begins to show what's our first point today, the stubbornness of sin. He's now going to begin to remind people of what has happened so far in Israel's history. 
And there's two places we've seen a lot in the book of Deuteronomy that we need to bear in mind. And the first is Mount Horeb, or what we see Moses calls it other places in the first five books of the Bible, Mount Sinai. And this is where this was kind of the first pit stop. They've been brought out of Egypt, and they stop at Mount Sinai. And then there's Kadesh Barnea, which from Egypt they went to Sinai. From Sinai they went to Kadesh Barnea, the first door to the promised land. And so with those two things in mind, we're going to read uh, kind of a longer portion Deuteronomy 8, or 9, 8 through 21. And what I want you to feel as we read this is the weight that Moses, I think, wants Israel to feel. The weight of those who might presume that they are something special. So this is verse 8 through 21. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. When I went up the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water, and the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. On them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, on the day of the assembly. And at the end of 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people whom you have brought from Egypt have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly out of the way I commanded them. They have made themselves a metal image. Furthermore, the Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and behold, it's a stubborn people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make you, Moses, a nation mightier and greater than they. So I turned and came down the mountain, and the mountain was burning with fire. And the two tablets of the covenant were in my hand. And I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made yourselves a golden calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way the Lord commanded you. So I took hold of the two tablets, and I threw them out of my hands and broke them before your eyes. Then I lay prostrate before the Lord as before, forty days and forty nights, I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all of the sin you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you, so that he was ready to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me that time also. And the Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him, the high priest. And I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. Then I took the sinful thing, the calf you'd made, and burned it with fire and crushed it, grinding it very small until it was fine as dust. And I threw the dust into the brook that ran down from the mountain. Completely terrible, utter failure at Horeb. But what I love about Moses, he knows our stubborn hearts. He knows what we'll say next. But that was only once, right? You take out Horeb and we're a sterling people. But look at what he says next, 22 through 24. At Tibera also... Well, that's twice. And at Massa, well, that's three times. And at Kibroth Hatava, okay, you provoke the Lord to wrath. And when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and take possession of the land I've given to you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God and did not believe him or obey his voice. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. Moses wants these people to see that they have a problem repeatedly, consistently, these people have provoked their God to wrath precisely because of their unrighteousness. 
They are unable to perform the perfect standards of God. And in spending this larger amount of time at the sins at Horeb, what Moses is doing for these people is he's helping define their rebellion and the consequences of it. You see, at Horeb, it wasn't just this first pit stop. It was a pit stop where God called Moses up on this mountain to meet with him, where God was going to give to Moses a covenant. He didn't need to. God had already brought his people out of Egypt. He had already made them his people. He had already delivered them. God was already merciful. He could have said, I brought you out of Egypt. Don't screw it up again. But he entered into a covenant with Moses. Basically, it says this. It's summarized in the Ten Commandments and then in Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God. But it was if Israel stays faithful to God, God will bless them eternally. He will take care of them, provide for them, and protect them. This was first and foremost a covenant of God's mercy. So many times you'll hear people talk about the Old Testament as this part of the Bible that lacks grace. But it is so rich with grace. This was God's grace, good rules given to his people. And it was this gracious covenant that Moses now begins to recite for the people in slow motion so that they can see the problem that unfolded before their eyes. And so I'm going to read 9 through 17 again. And I want you to listen to this covenant language that's in here. When I went up the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, on the day of assembly. At the end of forty days and forty nights, the Lord gave me two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people, whom you have brought from Egypt, have acted corruptly. They have turned aside out of the way I commanded them. They have made themselves a metal image. Furthermore, the Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stubborn people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven, and I will make you a nation greater and mightier than they. So I, now Moses, turned and came down from the mountain And the mountain was burning with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my hand. And I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made yourselves a golden calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way the Lord God commanded you. So I took hold of the two tablets, threw them out of my hands, and broke them before your eyes. Moses goes up the mountain gets these good rules, rules which the prophet Nehemiah reflects on. Hundreds of years later, he calls right rules, true laws, good statutes, wonderful, wonderful words. And Moses is on the mountain, getting those words in the presence of God for 40 days and 40 nights. But in the valley, things go terribly. In the valley, they see a mountain flaming with fire and a leader who went up and hasn't come back down. And they begin to get antsy. Aaron the priest, the people as a whole, they appoint a new leader. They make for themselves new gods and say, here are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. And Moses hears from God that the people are violating the covenant and he comes down. And before he even gets into the midst of the camp with these wonderful words of grace, before he can share with the people the goodness of this covenant, the people have already 
broken it. And that's why Moses throws him on the ground. It's not just that Moses lost control and was angry, though it does show the grievousness of their sin, but it was primarily to introduce a massive problem that the Israelites now had to face. They broke the covenant. They didn't have hope. They were in a violation of it. Now, twice, God and Moses say, you've quickly turned away. This is pretty crazy circumstances, right? Remember, these people are the people, these people at Horeb, who Moses is describing, they saw ten plagues flow from the hand of God. They watched the angel of the Lord pass over the land of Egypt, sparing those who were covered by the blood of the Lamb. They saw the Red Sea stand on its head. They were led by a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud by day. They heard the audible voice of God thunder from Mount Horeb. They saw the presence of God descend on a mountain like a never-ending, consuming fire. Yet even as their faces were warmed by the presence of God, they turned their back in rebellion. They were a stubborn people. And Moses defines the problem of rebellion. He says... It is sin. Deuteronomy 9, verse 16, he says, it was because of your sin against God that you turned quickly from all the Lord had commanded you. And because of their sin, they now stood in judgment. God was right, just, and good to say, you have broke my covenant And now you have earned the punishment of covenant breakers. It's one thing to step back and see this in history. It's another thing when the Bible brings this stubbornness into your own heart. But this is what we must see today. Moses defined sin as nothing but turning from the commandment of God. And this is what each and every one of us are born into. We are born with hearts turned from the flaming mountain of God's glory to the trinkets of this world. We are by nature covenant breakers. None of you want to have this kind of encounter with God's prophet where he says, do you remember the time? Do you remember the time? Do you remember the time? And we might stop and say, I haven't done anything terrible. I haven't killed anyone. I haven't defrauded anyone. I haven't made an idol. But Moses just told these very same people a bit ago that the greatest commandment is this, the commandment upon which all the other commandments rest. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Which means the first sin, the first covenant breaking that anyone endures is nothing out here but something in here. The first sin each and every one of us commits is a sin of lovelessness towards God. Here's where we need to listen to our world and listen carefully because our world might have wrong prescriptions but they're not dumb. Our world knows the problem. They've identified it. Man, if only we could love, right? If we could just get love out there 
things would be better. And they're right. Love is the problem. But the problem is that our hearts are so broken, we cannot love what we ought to love. And we love the things that we shouldn't love. We are broken in our hearts from day one. When God made Adam and Eve in the garden as the heads of humanity, when Adam rejected God's love, all of us were born into his legacy of lovelessness and brokenness. This is what Paul says in Romans 5, 12 through 14. Therefore, just as sin, sin is the turning away, sin is this lovelessness towards God, came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin was indeed in the world before the law was given. We just saw that. Before the people got the covenant, they already broke it, and they were still just as guilty. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. God says, your sin might not look as blatant as Adam, but it's certainly equally as damning. We introduced my kids to the uh, old TV show, The Andy Griffith Show, this week, and my son watched it, and he was just like, when does the color start? <laughs> um, so it's been a nice cultural experiment with him. And uh, we watched an episode yesterday where Opie, who's Andy's son, um, and his friends push his dad's car, his dad's the sheriff, and they push his car in front of a fire hydrant because it would be funny because now the sheriff has to give himself a ticket for parking in front of the fire hydrant. And then eventually Opie comes to his dad and he confesses. He says, hey, dad, it was me and my friends who pushed the car in front, and I'm really sorry, and if you want to go arrest him and throw him in jail, you could do that now. And his dad says, but, but Opie, if you helped push then shouldn't you get thrown in jail too? And he says, well, yeah, Pa, but I didn't push very hard. <laughs> but how many times do we use that same justification to justify our moral standing before God? But I didn't push that hard. But the point Paul is making in Romans chapter 5, to have pushed even the slightest is to join the punishment of all the rebels. Neither we nor Israel have good grounds to boast in our righteousness. We are born under a law that measures, but we are not under its blessing. We're under its burden. For Israel and for us, something needed to give. Something needed to change. And this is where Moses began to express to the people that the solution to your stubbornness cannot be your stubborn heart to fix your stubbornness. Something else had to happen. And this is where we see the second point, the stubbornness of grace. Read with me um, Deuteronomy 9, 25, and we're going to go through verse 5 of chapter 10, and then we're going to skip ahead to, to verse 10. It'll be on the screens. So I lay prostrate before the Lord these 40 days and 40 nights. Have you ever thought you've prayed before? Here's Moses, 40 days and 40 nights, prayerfully prostrate, laying out before God. Because the Lord said he would destroy you. And I prayed to the Lord, 
O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or the wickedness of their sin, lest the land, that's Egypt, from which you brought us, say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land he promised to them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. For they are your people and your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. At that time, the Lord said to me, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and come up to me on the mountain and make an ark of wood. And I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets that you broke, and you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of acacia wood and cut two tablets of stone like the first and went up the mountain with the two tablets in my hand. And he wrote on the tablets, in the same writing as before, the Ten Commandments, or literally remember the ten words that the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them to me. Then I turned and came down the mountain, and I put the tablets in the ark that I made, and there they are, as the Lord commanded me. He's pointing, they're there today. You could see them. And then skip ahead to verse 10. I myself stayed on the mountain, as at the first time, 40 days and 40 nights, and the Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was unwilling to destroy you. And the Lord said to me, Arise, go on your journey at the head of your people, so that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Remarkably, in light of the people of Israel, in light of Horeb, in light of Tibera, in light of Massa, in light of Kidbroth Hatava, in light of Kadesh Barnea, God gave grace. Have you ever wondered, even in the deepest part of your heart, if God would have grace for you? See, there are times that Moses has said in Deuteronomy this phrase, this command actually, to fear God. We'll actually see it in chapter uh, 10 today. When the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, the Bible talks about a fear which drives us to God. But many of us have a fear of the Lord which distances ourselves from God. Where we don't think he could ever be gracious like this. I know for me, it's really easy on like this macro level to know like, yes, it has to be God's grace that I get into heaven. It has to be his grace that salvation is given to me. But in smaller ways, like inside of my repentance, I feel like God will only be gracious to me if I can show enough righteousness on my own. If I can do good enough, I will know that that sin has been forgiven. That I have made atonement because of my righteousness for those sins. But here, before Israel could even earn it, God gave it. And what did that grace look like? New tablets, same words. The same hope, rearticulated. The same faithful covenant-keeping God re-offered. If you've ever broken a contract before, you know that typically a breach of a contract or a covenant typically cues all sorts of more pages of uh, 
legislative language and laws and rules. But here God doesn't up the ante. He doesn't build up more protections inside of this. He doesn't raise the bar. He re-articulates in grace the same gracious offer. But this shouldn't be surprising for us at this point in Deuteronomy. Because Moses has been harping God's faithfulness to his people. God's faithfulness to his covenant. How faithful will this God be? Faithful enough to endure the violation of his covenant through sin. Look at how Isaiah speaks of this in Isaiah 54, verse 7 through 8. This is God speaking. For a brief moment, I deserted you. But with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. God gives lovely, everlasting, enduring grace. But what happened? God was right to oppose sin. It demanded judgment. For God to be perfect, it had to be dealt with. And yet, Moses says, overlook it. And God does. What happened in between? There was a mediator, wasn't there? There was a man who stood between God and his people. You see, as much as we saw last week, the time in the wilderness for 40 years was a testing of Israel's heart. I firmly believe that this scene on Mount Horeb was the testing of Moses' heart. What would Moses do in a moment where the offer was given to him for him to be the new head of God's people? Would Moses rest in his righteousness? Would he think that he has enough in him to create a faithful covenant people? Would Moses think it's a good career move to go from just being the prophet of the people to the new patriarch of the people? And the, what I love about Moses, who wrote the first five books, the Decalogue, is we see the humanity of him. We see him sometimes as this mighty mediator and this faithful prophet, but we see him other times as this blabbering, faithless, broken sinner. And it was in this moment where probably because Moses just spent 40 days in the presence of God, that Moses knew that no man would be good enough to keep this covenant. Even if it defaulted to him, the problem wouldn't be fixed. And Moses aims higher, right? Look at what he's, he, look at his appeal to God in verses 27 through 29 of chapter 9. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard their stu the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness of sin, lest the land, so he's talking about lest those in Egypt from which you brought us, that's Israel, say... These people are being punished because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land he promised them. And because the Lord hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. So if we're not careful here, 
We can read Moses' words here as pandering. And it's no small leap for us to do that because we get pandering, don't we? We know how to pander to people who are in authority to get what we want. But all throughout Deuteronomy, we see God discerning the hearts of people. He says, you spoke this in your heart, and I heard it, and you're in trouble. Which means when Moses is saying to God here, he says, Lord, what will your enemies say when they see what you've done? Lord, if you destroy this people, what will Egypt think of you? What will the Canaanites think of your mercy? What will the Girgashites think of your promise? Moses is not pandering here. Moses is so singularly focused on the glory of God's name. Why? Why does he go here? If he's not pandering, what is the truth behind Moses' petition? Moses knew the only way that this covenant could be remade was a faithful covenant. God keeping a faithful covenant to a faithless people for the fame of his name. I'll say that again. Moses knew the hope for these people was God keeping a faithful covenant for a faithless people for the fame of his name. Moses knew at the center of God's saving covenant was the glory of God, that in keeping his redemptive covenant to his people, God would be seen as glorious, and that is the best thing for anyone in this world. Moses knew as a mediator, and he knew as a man, that the only thing big enough to breach the gap of sin, to breach the brokenness of the covenant, was the glory of of God. And it's here where Moses fulfilled this mediator role in a beautiful way. He responded well to the test that God gave him on the mountain. And look at this wonderfully important shift that the mediator had on Horeb. Look at the language. So God is speaking to Moses here when he finds out about their sin. Verse 11 of chapter 9. The Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here. For your people, Moses, whom you, Moses, have brought out of Egypt, have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly out of the way I commanded them. They have made themselves a metal image. So God is like, these are your people, Moses. My people would be pure to the covenant. This is your problem. But look at the shift. Look at how the mediator speaks to God in verses 27 through 29. Remember your servants. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin, lest the land from which you brought us say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land he promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. For they are your people, your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Moses is reminding God of who possesses these people. It was Moses who went to those who were once through their sin, not God's people, and began to bring them back by reminding God that these are his people. That's what a gospel mediator does. It goes to those who are no longer a people and brings them back to the God who makes them his people. And he reminds God of his covenant, a covenant which for a moment needed to overlook sin and wickedness. And Moses, in fulfilling this mediator role, pointed forward to a new mediator, 
the mediator that we need, not having a Moses, if we want to be seen inside of God's grace. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 7, verses 22 through 28. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in the office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. You see, Jesus became the mediator who brought his people back to God, not by asking God to overlook their sin, but by bearing the punishment for their sin. If you've ever bought a car, you've realized the odd phenomenon that as soon as you buy a car, you drive around town, you see that make, model, and color everywhere. When we see what Moses is doing in this text, we see Jesus everywhere. He's everywhere. He is the fame of God's name before the nations. Jesus is the intercessor and mediator par excellence. It is Jesus who spent 40 days in the wilderness preparing to be our mediating king. It was Jesus who became the sinful thing and was ground and put out for us. It is Jesus who takes those who are far off and brings us back to God. How can you, in your brokenness and track record of sin, be assured of God's stubborn grace? Only by seeing the role that Jesus plays in the gospel. That is the only way you can go from resting in the stubbornness of sin to resting in the stubbornness of grace. Jesus stands eternally in defense, better than Moses, making intercession for those who come to him. Paul says this, continuing on where we left off in Romans chapter 5, verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that, the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one man's trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death death reigned through that one man, much more, do you hear that language? Much more is the mighty mediator of Jesus. Will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, there it is, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. You see, Moses, we've skipped over it a couple times just because of the size of texts we're going through in Deuteronomy. He's constantly reminding people that he's going to die because of their sin. But the truth is, Moses knows he's going to die because of his sin. The people's sin provoked Moses to sin. And because of Moses' sin, this mediator won't get into the promised land. Moses died for his sin. Jesus died for yours. God didn't keep his covenant to Moses because out of all the people, Moses was righteous. Moses can't boast. 
in his righteousness. God kept his covenant to Moses because Moses needed the better mediator. Moses needed the righteousness of Jesus. It is not because of your righteousness, your performance, your income level, or anything that God has brought you to where you are. It is because of the grace of Jesus Christ. And now, Moses has shown you had a stubborn problem. God's grace is more through that stubborn mediator, Jesus Christ, who lives to give intercession for those who come to him. But now he asks his people a really important question. Deuteronomy 10, the first part of verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? How many times have you asked yourself that question? We ask ourselves that question daily in other spheres of life, don't we? What does my crush require of me? What does culture demand from me? What does success require from me? But in light of God's stubborn grace, have you ever seen him as the supreme authority in your life and said, what does this God require of me. And Moses is about to give three sets of commands. But what we're going to see in these three sets in closing is the kindling of ardent, heartfelt worship as a response to God's grace. Read with me the last section, Deuteronomy 12, or 10, 12 through 22. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God and to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I'm commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt." You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. And now Moses is saying, look, look, look. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in heaven. So Moses gives a lot of commands actually, in this text. The first and the third set of commands really don't have anything new we haven't seen. Love the Lord your God, keep his commandments, serve him, obey him, fear him. But in the middle of those commands, there's this unique command. Circumcise the foreskin of your hearts. And it's here where we begin to see the result of God's stubborn grace in the hearts of broken people. And this is the last point. The liberty of love. 
There's a context here that we need to be aware of as Moses is talking about this, and that is that the first sign of belonging to God's people, belonging to God's covenant in the days of Moses, was that the male children were to be circumcised. But here, Moses shocks even the Israelites. Moses goes to show that the true marking of God's covenant people must go deeper than the mere cutting of the flesh. It must cut the heart. You, O Israel, looking into the promised land, you, O Christian, gazing into eternity, you must see that unless your heart is changed, the stubbornness will continue. You can keep all the external laws you want to look like a follower of God, but external commands cannot alter the heart. Only a circumcision of heart can cause us to love God. But there's a problem here, isn't there? Who can cut their hearts and live? But look at what the author of Hebrews says. Continuing on, after he talks about Jesus and his new covenant, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 12. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant. Than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. Do you hear Horeb here? And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each other, his, each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one, that is Jesus, obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Jesus makes a new covenant. A covenant which finally applies all the goodness of God's perfect law to our heart. A new covenant that deals with our sin because Jesus has dealt with them on the cross. A new covenant which brings for the first time the radical liberty to love God with a heart unencumbered. Can you imagine if there was a pill you could take that would make you love low-fat foods? If there was a patch you could put on that would make you an ardent Exerciser. Is that even a word? Maybe that shows my own level of fitness. If there was something we could take that makes us love what is good, wouldn't we line up for days? And yet here, this is what the gospel does for us. It changes our hearts so that for the first time, we can love what is good. Colossians 2 says that on the cross, Christ made a circumcision of our hearts without hands by setting apart the dead portion so that we can love God with religious affection. 
That we can respond to the covenant for the first time with our hearts. If you want relief from the burden of performance, come to this Jesus. If you want relief from the failure of your efforts, come to Jesus. If you want to experience the stubborn and enduring power of this grace, come to Jesus. You see, at the heart of all of this, Moses wants to see it has to be filled with worship. We are so prone, I am so prone to look at the how of covenant keeping and neglect the why of covenant keeping. That is to say, I look to Moses and I see it's through his role as intercessor. I see these laws are coming wherein sacrifices are made. I look to the new covenant. I say, Jesus came. He made propitiation for our sins. That's how. But what stands behind the how of your salvation is the why. And if we miss the why of our salvation, we miss the heart of salvation. Our hearts remain uncircumcised by God. But look at what Moses says is the why behind all these commands which Jesus fulfills. Listen to the why in Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 17. Uh, 14 through 17, excuse me. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. God has everything. The mountain in its splendor, the ocean in its power, the stars in their vastness. Yet, the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Moses is about to herald. You ready to hear Moses the herald? For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribes. Why would God save you in his covenant? Because that's what this God does. Because God has set his love on his people in Jesus. It is because God loves you that your heart can be changed. To respond to God's grace is to be hit by the Mack truck of God's affection. Your salvation is not a theological equation. It is an expression of a divine emotion for you. And if we are not struck by the weight of that, then we will always present to God the work of our hands and not the affection of our hearts. It is God who has sent his son for a change that starts here. And when we realize what Jesus has done, it is nothing but worship. To obey, to keep, to serve, to follow, 
and to fear. I pray that that God has loved you in this way through the gospel. And may we partner together to set aside the stubbornness of sin and pursue the grace of God. Let's pray. Yeah, Lord, we, uh, we are a privileged people. There is nothing that our hands can do to take away our sin. But your hands, those righteous hands, were pierced in our place. Just as Moses ground an idol and threw it in the streams that ran down the mountain, so the streams of blood that flow from Jesus carry away our sin. Lord Jesus, be after our hearts. Change them. Make us to love the things we ought to love so that we can live for your glory, knowing that it is your glory in Jesus Christ which stands to the world that this God has not abandoned his people. That this God is the faithful God, the covenantal God, the great God, the awesome God, and you can get in on it too by his grace. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time together. Lord, if we cannot earn your favor in our hearts, then make us reflect your mercy in all of our life. We pray this in your name. Amen.